Amen. Hopefully we can keep that thought in mind. Christ, our sure and steady anchor that we hold fast to as our only hope as we go through Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 this morning. Please take your Bibles to Hebrews 5. And I'll be preaching, Lord willing, from chapter 5, 7 through 10. But I'd like to read 1 through 10 for us because they are all connected to make the same argument. And so we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged, obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children can be dismissed to Children's Church. And I suppose we could dismiss the teachers of Children's Church as well, or else we could have chaos. While I was backstage earlier, adjusting the microphone, um, because someone who will not be named has an inordinately large head. <laughs> I figure if we can have a little give and take here. But um, I heard that, that the person who also gave announcements took too much time. So if we go along, you know where the blame lies. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's look at Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 this morning. And it continues, as we saw last week, to make the case for why we should not fall away from faith in God's salvation through a new high priest, our high priest, who is better than the old high priest of the old covenant, the Old Testament, of the Levitical order. Our high priest is of a new order, the Melchizedekian order, as we will see more in chapter 7, as that is explained, the nature and the qualities of our high priest after a new order. But this theme of our high priest is another angle in the author's argument that what we have in Christ is worth holding on to and not letting go of. And what a blessing to have such concrete, logical, reasonable, rational arguments to support our faith. Some people accuse Christians of 
having what they would call a blind faith. And what they mean by that is a faith that's really baseless. There's really no reason for what you believe in. You have to trust as if you're walking in the dark with nothing to support you or lead you. And that's, of course, not the kind of faith that we have. The biblical worldview, and what I mean by that is, is the rightly understood word of God applied to life. That worldview is wonderfully liberating and wonderfully enlightening so that we can view ourselves, the world around us, the people around us, God himself, and what he requires of us with accuracy. It makes wonderful sense of the world to view the world through faith. It makes sense of what I see outside of me. It makes sense of what I see in my own heart and mind. And it is satisfying. It's not unreasonable. However, I think probably most of us don't struggle to justify our faith in God in the first place. But perhaps what we struggle with more is to justify our justification before God. That God would accept us. Does God really want us to be there with him where he dwells? Does he welcome us with joy and open arms? And I think that's what we struggle more with. Like the image Rob has given us of children playing before the throne of God, I think that's helpful imagery for us to think about. And it is uh, insightful as we think about our own hearts and what we would do how we would feel imagining ourselves before God himself. Is that you? Are you bold as you approach the throne? Can we, when we sing that song, bold I approach the eternal throne, do we feel that? Do we know that? Are we convinced of that? Or is it more like uh, hesitantly shaking I tiptoe toward the throne of God, wincing, hoping he doesn't see what's in my heart. Yes, we see Christ. We trust in Christ. And we would not say, none of us, I'm sure, if asked, would say, I'm looking to myself for my own justification. I'm, I'm hoping to be justified, declared righteous before God based on my own record. None of us would say that. That would be a fool's errand. But... Though we see Christ, we also see our sin and our unholy thoughts and desires, our propensities towards selfishness, laziness, neglect, how we lose our temper and react harshly with our children and others. We feel guilty, therefore, and we feel ashamed. We feel our unworthiness, as we should, because in and of ourselves we are unworthy. However, that's not what defines us now in Christ, and so we need help we need grace, grace that is sufficient to give us confidence and boldness to approach God, the throne of grace, where we receive exactly what we need, mercy and grace. We need our confidence to grow. We need to see and rest in our great high priest, our only redeemer. He justifies us now and forever. What depends on this high priest? Not much, just a little thing called our eternal salvation, as we'll see. Let's pray. Father, help us. We come to you knowing our weakness and our limitations, our inabilities, but depending upon your spirit to do the work in us that we cannot do for ourselves, to 
understand and see, that you would illuminate this word, that you would exalt Christ, our great high priest, and our only redeemer in our minds, in our hearts, so that we would love him and cherish him, and as a result, find confidence to rest and to work in faithfulness because of his righteousness, because of this gift of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our high priest is the righteous son and the source of our salvation. And so first we're going to see how he is the righteous son. And again, we're going to see the contrast between the old high priest, who is simply human, a human like us, and who was sinful like us. He shared in our weakness in that he was immoral, unrighteous. We'll see that our high priest, Jesus, is not like that. The high priest is, of course, the important theme that continues throughout Hebrews. And he was a representative. The high priest is a representative to mediate, to bring us to God, to represent the people before God and bring them to him vicariously. To bring people into the presence of God. And let's consider for a moment, what is the presence of God like? What is it uh, like to be with God? Psalm 1611 helps us when it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what we have in Christ, to access the presence of God, to have real joy that lasts and transcends our circumstances, that doesn't depend on our circumstances, but that will truly satisfy us for all eternity. And that's what we receive in the presence of God. That's what it's like to be in the presence of God, complete, whole, satisfied, joyful, at peace. It's where we live. But what does God require for us to have that eternal life? We might say faith. Well, of course, God requires faith for us to have that eternal life that leads us into the presence of God for all eternity. And that's true, but we'd actually be getting out in front of our skis a little bit because there's something that we actually receive by faith, which is what God requires for our salvation. Jesus said in Luke 10, when a lawyer comes to him and puts him to the test and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. That's true. Do this and you will live. Is that all that's required? Got it. That should be simple enough. Simply love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and do it perfectly. Not a problem, right? What God requires for us to be with him is righteousness. And of course, our problem is that we have none. If we fail in one regard to the law, we fail in all of it. We have no righteousness if we look back over the course of human history, in the very beginning we traded in righteousness for unrighteousness in the garden. We forfeit fellowship with God. We flouted his law, his grace, his kindness, and his presence. 
We lost the dwelling place that we had with him, and we lost life itself. We also look at human history and the sad story of Israel's failure and rebellion, a horrible cycle of failure, rejection of God, punishment and correction, a coming back but then failing again. Israel proved that humanity, no matter how much of God's power and grace were seen, could not be righteous and meet God's standard of holiness. Romans 1 through 3, uh, if you ever need to be reminded of our inability, of our corruption that we experience because of sin, read Romans 1 through 3. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, not even one. So, Clearly, that includes all of us. And this is our problem. Because we cannot be with God unless we have righteousness. God does not dwell with sin. But God, Romans 8, 3, God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. And this is what God has done. God requires righteousness. We are born in Adam's sin and cannot be righteous on our own. And so we need someone like us, someone to stand in the place of us, who can actually be righteous and give us his perfect record so that God can include us in the verdict of righteous, not guilty. And that is our only hope. And that is exactly what God has done through our high priest, Jesus. He is... The human solution. You see that point there? The human solution. And I'm borrowing language from, that you may recall, maybe, from back in October when Pastor Josh preached. He said from chapter 2 of Hebrews, what we need, what we require, is a human solution. Now that's a striking statement. And it struck me as I sat in my seat and heard it. Because it seems a little counterintuitive, right? We would say, well, our problem is unrighteousness. Our problem is sin. And the only answer must come from the divine. God has to reach down into humanity and remove our guilt and remove our sin. And he does. But he does so through a man, through a human option. This is what God requires. Not just in a potential righteousness, but an actual righteous human life that can be applied to us. So someone had to accomplish that for us. It's just like the human solution God used, also Christ, to remove our negative account, the debt of sin that stood against us, condemning us. He removed that in Christ. He also has to give us a positive account of righteousness. We don't simply remain neutral. We have to be righteous. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, and so we needed a human substitute, one to stand in our place as one of us to take our punishment and to be righteous. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 was all about that human solution God provided for the human problem. So let's quickly remind ourselves, if you want to turn to Hebrews 2, look first at verses 6 through 8. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. 
putting everything in subjection under, under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to us, he left nothing outside his control. This is what it was like, at least in the beginning. God crowned man with glory and honor, the pinnacle of his creation, giving him authority, giving him representation, giving him dominion over the creation to subdue it and to care for it and to nurture it as representatives of God's authority. And we lost it. We gave it up. And so, at present, Hebrews 2 continues, we do not see everything in subjection to us. We do not see the control over the creation and over life that God initially gave to his humanity. And we don't have to think very far or very long ago to realize that's not true. Think about the past year of your life in all its relationships, in all its tasks and responsibilities, in all of your hopes and ambitions. Do you have control over all those things and all those people? Think back to five minutes ago. Think to your children, maybe some of them sitting next to you. How much control do you have over them and the circumstances and the outcomes of their lives? We don't have control. <laughs> we have lost all control. And so we need the one who can bring everything back into control and into subjection. And it requires a man. The second Adam to bring back what the first Adam lost. Jesus is Adam, or at least Adam as he should have been. Jesus is like us, Hebrews 2 continues in verses 9 through 18. He is a human, crowned with glory and honor as we were made to be, a brother of the one that he sanctifies. We are brothers, sharing with us in flesh and blood, so he could die for us and deliver us made like us so he could become this merciful and faithful high priest as one of us to make propitiation for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God and suffer temptation like us, yet overcome to both relate to us, to comfort us, and to help us overcome as well. Jesus is our human solution. Of course, he's not just human. He also had to be divine to ensure that this would work but he also had to be human to be the appropriate substitute and sacrifice for us. The explanation of this high priest continues now in Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Let's read verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And we need to see here the emphasis on Jesus' humanity. Yes, he is the son of God, the son of man. He is divine, but he is also human. He came and put on our human form, condescended in humility to become one of us. And so we see this first phrase in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, as we were to think back about his incarnation, his earthly life and ministry. And the author is first calling us to see the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now we may be tempted at times to compartmentalize, to categorize. You have history, the history of the world, of civilizations, of, of human life and accomplishments. And then you have church. 
right? You have spiritual things, and, and Christ falls into that category. And sometimes we remove him from actual human history. But before Jesus could offer us any spiritual benefits as a man, he had to have been an actual historical person who actually lived and died and rose again as God demanded. And he came as someone like us in our flesh. He shares in our flesh and blood to obey God and love God fully as we couldn't do. But what all did he do in his flesh? What is the author telling us he accomplished in the days of his flesh? Well, we might think all kinds of things. We can think of all of the, the accounts in the Gospels of, of healings and ministry and the things that he said and the things that he, that he taught and exemplified. He revealed the Father's character and glory, healed diseases, taught astounding things, things not of any kingdom of earth, but about the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. And of course, he died for sinners and rose again in, in victory over the grave. But here, the author tells us what? What did Jesus do in his flesh? He prayed. Jesus prayed. Why would the Son of God, who is truly divine with all the attributes of divinity, all the omniscience, all the power, all of the glory, all of the righteousness, perfection, why would he need to pray? Well, because again, we need to see that he was also human. And as we focus on his humanity, he depended on God, just like we depend on God in our human weakness and need. We're dealing, again, with the miraculous confluence of a divine nature and a human nature in one person. And so here we see his humanity especially. And as a man, he suffered, verse 8 says, he suffered as a human, as one of us. He was called the suffering servant. He's labeled and titled by his very suffering. Don't forget that Jesus lived in our context. He came to the same exact world and the same exact experience under the curse of sin that we live in. Suffering, injustices, but he did so in a different way than we do. He did so as someone who is innocent, which we will never understand what it's like to live in this environment of sin and injustice because we ourselves are sinners. We are not just victims of sin. We are the criminals. And so Jesus, being innocent, being sinless, being righteous, this sick, sinful environment under the curse would have been even more caustic to his senses than it is to ours because we are sinners ourselves. He was the only innocent human maleficiary, the victim of sin. The Bible says he prayed, he offered up prayers and supplications, and this word supplications is a little bit different, it has a different emphasis than just prayers, normal communication with God. It communicates to us a strong, almost distressed, visceral appeal made to God. And of course, we see that more clearly when we add the phrase, he offered up these supplications with loud cries and tears. Someone who suffers. 
When did Jesus pray with loud cries and tears? We should wonder, what, what is this referring to? What prayers? And first, we may rightly think of his testing in the wilderness, right? Jesus goes out. He must be tested, tempted by Satan himself to see that he can endure temptation as a man. And we see this theme in Hebrews as well. We've also seen it in Exodus because we are people who wander through the wilderness. We are in the wilderness now and we are hoping to be someday entering into God's rest, into his promised land. Jesus experienced the wilderness for us. His temptation in the wilderness ensured that he would be tried, as we saw in chapter 4, in every way that we are. Tempted, tested in every way that we are, yet he must remain completely sinless, which he did. Although not explicit in the text, he no doubt in his testing in the wilderness, 40 days of no food and water, how much need would he have as a man? Being driven almost to death itself. He cried out to the Father, no doubt, the one who was able to save him from death, for help to withstand the temptation and hunger and yet remain obedient. We should also think of, certainly, his prayer in the garden. What did Jesus pray in the garden? What was his state? Being in agony and anguish, so much so that with his sweat came blood, drops of blood as the capillaries burst from the pressure and the stress of knowing what he was going to face, the torturous death of crucifixion. Not only that, but the infinite weight of the wrath of God against sin. In great anguish, he fell on his face and prayed, according to Matthew, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Unimaginable suffering. We should also think of his loud cries and tears on the cross as he hangs there in agony, becoming sin for us and crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered, and people who suffer must be praying people if they are to have any kind of transcendent hope and comfort and help and strength in their suffering. They must pray. And so Jesus, as a man in his suffering, prayed. We are also people who suffer, and we need to pray. But why should God hear our prayers? Why do we expect that when we come to him, he will hear us and he will answer? We, after all, know the condition of our hearts and our hands. And God doesn't listen to the prayers of the unrighteous. He's made it clear, Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, who has done that? Even his prayer is an abomination. How can we be heard? How can we know that God will be a present help for us in the time of trouble? He only hears the righteous. What happened when Jesus prayed? Look at verse 7. He was heard. Jesus was heard in his prayers and supplications through anguish and tears and loud cries. The Father heard him. And how was he heard? 
This one he's praying to, the Father, is the one who can save him from death, and he hears and answers his prayer. But that's a little bit confusing, isn't it? The one who can save him from death, how is Jesus saved from death? He goes and he dies, doesn't he? Well, consider what he prayed in the garden. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to experience this. In his human will, he can have a difference in opinion from the will of the Father. Yet, he prays, cause me to submit to your will. Father, give me the strength to obey. In my human weakness, I don't want to turn from your will So if this is indeed the only way that it can happen, that redemption can be produced, then cause me to submit to your will. Because to reject the will of God is to die in sin. To reject the will of God for Christ would mean that he would die a death like any one of us and be condemned in sin. And therefore, death would have the victory. He would be swallowed up by death and remain in the grave How did God hear him? He was saved from that kind of death. The one who could save him from death kept him from walking away, from turning from the will of God, to go through with it, to endure and die a death of obedience. And in that way, he has conquered death by death. He was heard and he obeyed. The Bible says both in the wilderness and in the garden that God sent angels to minister to him, to strengthen him for the task at hand. He was heard. But why was he heard? As we said, God only hears the prayers of the righteous. And so now we expect to see that our high priest was indeed himself righteous. And that's what the Bible says. He was heard because, verse 7, of his reverence, also translated a godly fear. A godly fear, which is not a fear of punishment, of exile and separation, but a fear of awe and joy and wonder in the relationship that the Father has given, which guides Jesus into obedience. Throughout his human life, he had perfect, unhindered access to the Father in prayer because their fellowship was never broken by sin. He never failed in the wilderness by giving into Satan's temptation. In the garden, even though he asked if there was any other way, he didn't fail to submit to the will of the Father, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, he didn't curse the Father for crushing him in wrath, but instead, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I trust you and what you're doing in this, even in my death. This was reverent submission like no other. And for it, God has received Jesus as our high priest. Jesus wasn't just our example of how to pray and how to live. He was that also as we follow him. But first, he was our substitute who lived the righteous life that we could not. He was perfectly obedient, fulfilling all God's law. And now the Bible says he learned obedience through his suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. Now again, we have to wonder, how did Jesus, the Son of God, he is the righteous Son, as we've seen in previous verses, you are my Son, today I've begotten you, the Son of God himself, 
Now he has to learn obedience? Does that mean, like, at some point in the past he was disobedience? Now he has to be transferred from the category of disobedience to obedience? From immorality to morality? No. We need to see it in another light. He was righteous. For the sinless God-man, this learning was like the learning of Adam and Eve. What was at stake? What did the devil promise to them? And what did they actually receive? Knowledge of good and evil. Now, of course, the devil couched that in a way that was manipulative and, and, and untrue. And, of course, you know, hiding all the consequences that would come, which they could not have foreseen entirely. But they learned the knowledge of good and evil. A knowledge that they didn't have before. An experiential knowledge. Adam and Eve could understand the concept, the idea that to or disobey God would be evil, would be to commit sin, but they didn't experience it. They didn't know what it was like to be evil until they experienced it. Just like them, Jesus didn't have to become moral as though he were immoral. He had the ability to live a righteous life. He had the potential, the, the capacity but as a human substitute, he actually had to functionally live that righteous life for us. It couldn't simply remain a theory or an idea or a concept or a potential. It had to happen for us to be justified before God. For example, many of us have gone through job interviews, maybe many job interviews. And when you go to the job interview to the people who are seeing that you may or may not be the right fit for the job, they have posted or communicated qualifications, right? This is the list of qualifications you must have to be able to do the job. And when you interview and when you respond and when they agree with you, you have promised that you can meet the qualifications. You can fulfill the duties of the job. You have what it takes. However, that's only in theory until it's actually proven to be true. And so if you go to the job then, having promised to have the qualities necessary for accomplishing the job, but you can't accomplish the job, well, you're going to lose your job. You're not going to have a job anymore, but you're going to prove that your qualification wasn't true. It wasn't effective. In being perfectly obedient, Jesus accomplished the job. Jesus not only promised what he could do, he did it. Even through tremendous suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation by learning obedience. Number two, the high priest is not only the son of righteousness, but the source now of eternal salvation. What a beautiful phrase that all our hope rests in. Jesus is the source of my eternal salvation. Verse 9, and being made perfect by this suffering, obedience through suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now again, we see kind of a similar thing here going on where, where Jesus is becoming perfect. Jesus has to become perfect, meaning that it, in some way before he was imperfect. Yes, that's what the Bible's telling us. We saw this language before in chapter 2, verse 10. That Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. And again, a reminder, just like the obedience that he learned, it's not that Jesus 
just had the potential to be righteous, he was tested by suffering and proved that he was righteous. And in so doing, he was made perfect, complete. He was actually qualified to be our high priest. This again distinguishes our high priest Jesus from the high priest of the old covenant. Because we saw back in verse 3 of this chapter, the high priests of Israel offered sacrifices for their own sins. They first had to make atonement for their own sins by offering sacrifices to God. Only then did God hear their prayers and receive their ministry. And all of that imperfect because it was just a shadow, just a type of the high priest who would come. Jesus did not call to the Father on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. His whole life, and especially his obedience in the events surrounding his terrible death, was the sacrificial offering that consecrated him as our high priest. Jesus learned experientially what obedience entails through his passion in order to achieve salvation and to become fully qualified for his office as our eternal high priest. He proved that his wholeness, his completeness was enough, was sufficient for our eternal salvation because of his righteousness. And therefore he is qualified and therefore he can give us eternal salvation that he has won. Look at the phrase, the source. Jesus is the source of salvation. See the exclusivity. There is no other source for you to have eternal salvation. There are not many ways. There is one way. It's not insensitive or arrogant to say that, although some would make that accusation. It's actually loving to tell the truth. We need to make sure, of all people, Christians should be purveyors of truth, honest brokers, and the most loving thing we can do is tell the truth, especially when it comes to the eternal state of being of the people we know and love. Love tells the truth regardless of whatever public relations risk we might feel threatened by. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 is clear. There is one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is no other priest who can bring you to God. We have no other hope, no other source for our salvation. He is exclusive. No other priest. Not your godly parents. No other ideation of a deity or a religion that correlates with that so-called deity. No church attendance, no charitable giving, no humanitarian efforts. Not our own record of righteousness. There is no other priest who can bring you to God. Who here wants to stand before the omniscient, righteous judge on your own record of righteousness? One failure condemns us. And so Jesus is the only hope for sinners. Who receives this salvation? It's an important question, and the author deals with it. Who receives the salvation that is eternal, that comes from the one source, this high priest? 
It is those who obey. Verse 9. He's the source of eternal salvation for who? All who obey him. Now, we have to be careful here because all of a sudden it seems like maybe we could confuse justification as depending on our obedience, right? And if we do that, if we start to think, okay, now I have to become righteous, I have to be the one who who makes sure that I'm in God's favor by my obedience, by my own works. And if we do that, we nullify and reject the entire argument. We essentially redact it from Hebrews, what we've just seen. The point is, there is one source of salvation, and it is not you. And so we need to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. The people who obey receive are the ones who receive salvation, but not because of their obedience. Their salvation produces in them obedience. It's the other way around. God doesn't just reckon us, consider us righteous in Christ. He doesn't leave us there. He changes us. He gives us new life that's like the life of Christ. And so we are becoming righteous. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. We start to look like him because his life is in us. We can use a simple syllogism a logical argument to understand who it is that obeys Christ and therefore owns this eternal salvation. First of all, all Christians love God. All Christians love God. We can't, it's not really up for debate, okay? Not love him perfectly. We know we can't do that. That's the point of this text. Someone had to do that for us. However, all Christians do love God. First John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. All Christians love God. Love of God is proven by our obedience. Jesus was clear about that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me if you love me. Love produces obedience. So, all Christians love God. Love of God is proved by obedience. And three, those who obey God are Christians. Therefore, the author's argument. Those who obey God are the ones who have received righteousness in Christ. Right? Obedience is something God produces in those who are justified. It is our sanctification, our becoming holy, becoming like him. And it must take place. It's part of the eternal salvation God has given to us. But we don't obey perfectly, of course, or Christ would not have had to come. We would not need a Savior if we could do it. And what's the first act of obedience God calls us to and works in us? It's faith. To believe in this Christ, this high priest, and receive him as our justification. Lastly, I want to point out, which is similar to the the final point. Of course, we have the the same phrase here as we saw in verse 6. That Jesus is a priest designated by God after the order of Melchizedek. And so, all of this, this eternal salvation, this high priest, who is your righteousness, and the only righteousness you have is designated by God. Designated by God. Once again, we need to be reminded, Jesus did not come to save us from an angry, wrathful God who who was reluctant to forgive. Jesus came not opposing the Father's will, but submitting to the Father's will for our 
salvation. This is God's plan. As Rob said last week, there is no reluctant member of the Trinity in the covenant of redemption. In eternity past, before there was time as we recognize it today, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all three conferred together in love and joy and decided to call you, Christian, into fellowship with them. To provide an atonement, a propitiation for your sin. To offer you the same relationship that you were meant for in the beginning but lost because of sin. The Father designs this plan of salvation. The Son accomplished the plan of salvation. The Spirit applies the work of Christ to us and we become his children. All of this out of love. The Father loves us. Justification by faith is God's gift to sinners. We don't want to miss uh, the forest for the trees. And so to remind us all of this, the argument is so that we will not fall away. It's for our perseverance, for our endurance, so that we keep holding fast to Christ and don't neglect and don't miss the great salvation God has offered to us. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in this high priest, the only source of eternal salvation, the only hope you have before God because his righteousness is perfect, then trust in him. Come to God receiving this gift of salvation by faith through his grace. And you have every good thing in Christ. You have access to the Father. You are welcomed into the family you are adopted as his child, and your salvation is eternal. We are not the source of our justification. Jesus is, so trust in him. Now, for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we can lose our way a little bit. And I'm a little concerned that many of us are functioning with a sense of guilt, a sense of guilt that we're just not good enough, we're not doing well enough, and so what do we do? What do we do to, to be better, right? If we confuse justification with sanctification, justification is God's act of declaring us righteous in Christ. Sanctification is us becoming like Christ throughout our life, also God's work. If we confuse these two, we may, on the one hand, live in lawlessness. We might believe in a cheap and free grace that doesn't, change us, that doesn't demand anything of us, and says, it doesn't matter how I live now. I'm justified before God. I'm righteous, and now I can do whatever I want, and I don't have to worry or care about what God thinks of my life. A grace abuser. Perhaps, if you're there, the warnings in Hebrews are what you need to call you back, to make you sober, to be sure that your faith is in Christ alone and you have his holiness and sin-killing power at work in you. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Sometimes we need warnings, which are a grace of God to, to make us serious. 
The other ditch, I think, maybe more common among us, is that if we start to look to our works of righteousness, that I, I have to do this, I have to, I have to be in church, I have, to, I have to serve others, I have to, and on and on and on, our list goes. And if I don't, maybe God won't love me. <laughs> maybe I won't have favor with God. And now we start to base our justification on our own righteousness. Who's justified? Not the one who works and tries to earn it, but the one who doesn't work and rests in Christ's righteousness alone. And so we could accidentally start looking at our conduct for justification, see our failures, and be crippled with guilt, and end up crawling away from the very throne of grace that we need. I think of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. There's a line in that hymn that goes, If you tarry, if you wait until you're better to come to God, you will never come at all, because you will never be better. You can't make yourself good enough to approach God. You need someone else's righteousness. So we need to come back to trusting and hoping only for our favor with God in the righteousness of Christ. And then we can go forward with joy. Shame will keep us from running to God and receiving healing. We need to run to th the throne of grace because it's open for business. God's arms are open wide to his children. Even when we fail and we do, we don't now lose the favor of God for us. He loves us. He's smiling on us. When he looks at us, he sees his own son, Christ, and his perfect righteousness. And so we don't have to be ashamed and run away from our God. What we need to do is look to Jesus. Jesus walked through the wilderness for us. Jesus never failed. Jesus endured the suffering and the temptation without sin. And Jesus faithfully went to the cross and made propitiation for our sins. Bore the wrath of God. Rose again in victory over the grave. And he gives us his victory. We have won in Christ. There's no alternative for the Christian. You will not lose. His high priestly work has been accepted by God, and his salvation is eternal. Did you catch that word? It's an eternal salvation. Not temporary, not theoretical, not potential, actual and eternal. You will make it to the end, Christian, and God is doing that in you. Joy in God will fuel our sanctification and lead us home. Joy in God will fuel our sanctification and lead us home. Not guilt. Guilt will cripple us, but joy will enable us. Joy that we've already been accepted. We don't have to earn his favor. We have it. And so there we can, therefore we can live with this godly fear and awe and reverence that he has made us his children, and nothing can change that. That will cause us to go forward and endure and walk in the footsteps of Christ. In Christ you are not guilty. You are righteous. Do you know the freedom and the joy of being righteous? You are righteous in Christ. That will not change. We of all people should be most happy. Cue the hallelujah chorus, right? Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. God will never condemn his son, so God will never condemn us. If I can use the picture of marriage, of course, our living out of that image of marriage to, to exemplify the gospel is imperfect. But God will not condemn his son, and so therefore he will not condemn the bride who is joined to his son forever by faith. What God has joined together, no one can separate. 